Our Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 3 this evening. This is a very short Old Covenant reading, but it is actually foundational for understanding a great deal of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 40. We'll be reading through verse 42 this evening. This is also a very short portion of God's Word, and it is the capstone, as it were, on Matthew chapter 10. Those of you who have been with us know that in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the very first missionary journey. This is the very first time they will go out and seek to minister in Christ's name and in his authority, but without his presence. And so this is commonly known as the first missionary discourse. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 40, the word of our God. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Please keep your place here in the gospel according to Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Tonight we come to the conclusion of our Lord's very first missionary discourse. Uh, This discourse began with the remarkable fact that Jesus has given his disciples, who will become apostles, he has given them authority to cast out demons and to cure all manner of diseases. See, Jesus gives this authority to them so that everyone can tell that they are pronouncing the message Not in their authority, but in his. And yet, as we've gone through chapter 10 together, probably the most striking aspect of the chapter is how Jesus so plainly warns the disciples that they will face great persecution and hatred simply for proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Behold, Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Indeed, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. 
Beloved, those are sobering words. And while they have a very specific application to the original 12, they actually point forward to the entire mission of the church. As you're reading Matthew, please remember that everything is moving to the conclusion at the end, which is the Great Commission. As the church goes out to share the good news of Jesus Christ, or as we simply seek to live faithfully in our communities, quietly as it were, we can expect opposition from the world. This message in its broad sense is intended for the entire church militant until Christ comes once again to consummate his kingdom. See, beloved, Jesus loves us. And because Jesus loves us, he warns us about the hardships that we're going to face as his devoted disciples. See, Jesus is warning us of the attacks that we're going to face because he doesn't want us to be surprised by those attacks when they inevitably come. And because he wants us to be prepared to do the right thing. Furthermore, Jesus is teaching us these things so that instead of being destroyed by those who hate the kingdom of God, that we will overcome them. That is, Jesus is preparing us to win. As we come to the end of this missionary discourse, we ought to remind ourselves that in this world, we are going to have enemies. We will either be united with the world, in which case we will have Almighty God as our enemy, or we are going to be united with God in Jesus Christ, and therefore we are going to have the world as our enemy. As I said to you last week, you are going to have enemies. Choose them wisely. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story. For to be united with God in Christ does not merely mean that you are going to have the world as your enemy. It means that you are going to have Almighty God as your friend. And if God is for us, who can possibly stand against us? We're going to look at tonight's passage under three main headings. First, the church is Christ's body. Second, you do not need to be a hero. And third, Father Abraham has many sons. Let me give those to you again. First, the church is Christ's body. Second, you do not need to be a hero. And third, Father Abraham has many sons. We begin this evening with the glorious truth that the church is the body of Jesus Christ. Please look at verse 40 with me. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus is not saying that anybody who just happens to do something nice to one of the apostles or to missionaries or to us as Christians, that everybody who simply is nice to us in some way is in fact receiving Jesus and therefore receiving the Father. That is not what he's getting at. He's saying that everyone who receives his messengers, and therefore by implication the message that they are proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will receive the apostles, they will therefore receive Jesus, they will therefore receive the Father. Nevertheless, this is a staggering promise based on a breathtaking reality. Jesus Christ has so identified with his people, that is, with his church, 
that the New Testament will go on to speak of the church as being the body of Jesus Christ. It's the body that has Jesus as its head. Beloved, this is about you, right? This isn't some abstract thing or a history lesson about the first century. This is about you. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I want to encourage you to take some time this week to simply meditate on that one incredibly profound truth. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And if you do that, it's going to change at the very least the way that we treat each other in the church. And it ought to change the way that we treat every other Christian on the face of the earth. Second, the main point of tonight's passage is that we are vitally united with Jesus Christ, with Christ himself. Um, Think about how you react if someone attacks your body. You know, someone comes up and smacks you, or, or they cut you. I hope no one does that. Um, But you wouldn't respond by saying, eh, no big deal, it's only my body, right? No, you defend yourself, and in fact, if adults do that, they go to jail, right? That's illegal. Well, that's the way Jesus looks at his body, the church as well. When people attack his church, Jesus does not say no big deal. He acts on our behalf. Uh, We see Christ doing both of these things, For the apostolic church, that is, defending us, but also blessing us throughout the uh, book of Acts. For example, consider Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we encounter Saul, that is, the unconverted Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Saul goes to the high priest and he asks him for letters. He asks for letters that he can bring to the synagogues, So that if he finds anyone there in Damascus who's going in accordance with the way, that's that's the description that was originally given to Christians even before they were called Christians, if he finds anyone going in the way, men or women, he can drag them off bound back to Jerusalem to put them on trial. If you want to wonder a bit about just how fiercely Paul was ravaging the first century church, you ought to consider what happens when Jesus converts them. And Jesus sends a message to Ananias in a dream. That is, the Lord himself appears to Ananias in a dream and tells him to go to Saul. Now, Ananias, being a faithful servant, when the Lord appears to him, he says, here I am, Lord, at your service. How else do you respond to the Lord? And the Lord continues to him, rise, And go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Do you remember how Ananias responded? Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. 
Even though the Lord is directly addressing Ananias, Ananias is saying, in effect, please, Lord, not him. You must be making a mistake with him. Because that's how much damage Saul was doing in the early church. People were terrified even at his name. Christ's disciples, as Jesus tells us throughout Matthew 10, should have been expecting this very thing. He's told them about how the authorities were going to try to drag them off to prison and flog them and beat them and so on. Beloved, Saul was a fulfillment of what Jesus warned the church about in Matthew chapter 10. But thankfully, both they and we, when we are attacked for being Christians, are going to face this sort of persecution in union with Jesus Christ. That's the key thing to see out of this passage. Two things. First, Jesus overcomes Saul. Right? But before we get to Ananias, Jesus has appeared to Saul on the, on the road to Damascus, and with a burst of his own glory, he has knocked Saul to the ground. He has blinded him and overwhelmed him. Saul says, Who are you, Lord? So the first thing to realize is Jesus defends the church by silencing Saul. But second, please pay close attention to the way Jesus first addresses Saul. This is from Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Falling to the ground, Saul hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? Lord? And our Lord replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Do you grasp what's going on here? Saul is persecuting the church, and Jesus says, you are persecuting me. That is how closely Jesus is identified with his people. Jesus so identifies with you as his church that he takes any attack upon you personally as an attack upon his own person. See, Jesus is saying to us, as you go out and live for me in this world, I am coming with you, and I have all power in heaven and on earth. Now, there is one more application of this passage I think we need to make this evening. Uh, This one's a bit harder to hear. Even though the Apostle John makes this application himself in his first epistle, It is one that American Christians largely ignore or even deny in our own day. Consider the connection between receiving the apostles, receiving Jesus, and receiving God the Father according to Jesus. According to Jesus, this is a package deal. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, I want to suggest that essentially every Bible-believing Christian understands you cannot have a loving, salvific relationship with God the Father without also having Jesus Christ, right? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. But many, many American Christians make the mistake of thinking that you can have a salvific and loving relationship with Jesus and the Father while rejecting the apostles and the apostolic church. And that's simply wrong. 
as the totality of the New Testament makes clear, to unnecessarily separate yourself from the apostolic church is to be separated from both Jesus Christ and from God the Father. See, this is a package deal Jesus is talking about. And the Apostle John, as I say, makes that point very explicit in his first letter. This is why our confession of faith, which is an American version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, in line with the historic testimony of the entire universal church up until modern times, says this, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the visible church. Now, because God is free, we have the qualifier ordinarily. I mean, God can always do what he wants. He's God. But we ought not to allow that qualification to swallow up the bigger truth. It is an extraordinary thing to be united with the church of Jesus Christ. It is the body of Christ himself. The church is that for which Christ died, outside of which ordinarily there is no possibility of salvation. For this reason, the early church routinely compared the visible church to Noah's Ark. Uh, We don't really do that so much, but that was very common in the first couple centuries of the church. Now, if you think about Noah, Noah spent decades building this ark on dry land, a massive ship. No one could possibly move it. He's building it on dry land, and he's warning people as a preacher of righteousness that they need to repent because God is going to send judgment. And decade after decade, or perhaps more difficultly, day after day, people mocked him. They ridiculed him. But Noah did not allow the ridicule to keep him from doing what God had told him to do. And when the rains finally fell, everyone inside the ark is saved, everyone outside the ark is condemned and dies. Now I want to suggest that it is as foolish to leave the church of Jesus Christ because there are problems in it as it would have been for Noah to leave the ark because sometimes it smelled inside. I mean, read the reality of life into this. There are a lot of animals on the ark, and sometimes the ark must have stunk. Beloved, sometimes the visible church smells pretty badly too, which is every reason for us to commit ourselves to praying and working for the peace and the purity of Christ's church. But it is no reason for us to separate us from the body of Christ, apart from which there is ordinarily no possibility of salvation. Now, in many ways, Noah, at least prior to the flood, is a real hero of the faith. I mean, he's the exception. He's the person who's righteous and walking upright before God. And and so we can look at Noah and say, you've got to be like that to be important. But Jesus wants us to know in this passage that you do not need to be a hero in order to be a vital member of his body and in order to be a blessed member of his body. The church is Christ's body, and you do not need to be a hero to be a blessed part of it. Please look at verse 41 with me. Verse 41. Jesus continues, The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person 
will receive a righteous person's reward. Now, please don't do this. I'm going to tell you a bad way to read the Bible, right? So please don't do it. But it would be very easy for us to read the Bible, and we get so excited about these these remarkable people that, that are really heroes of the faith. They live at remarkable turning points in redemptive history. God works through them in dramatic ways and think, that's the main storyline of the Bible. That's what's really important. If I'm going to be significant and I'm going to be deeply blessed by God, I need to be like that, and I'm not. My life does not look like Moses' life at all. But see, that's a mistaken way to read the Bible. It is true that it is fascinating to consider the way that the Lord uses famous individuals like these. Read Hebrews 11. Right? Those things are written down for our instruction. They, they are fascinating and they are encouraging to us that we have this great cloud of witnesses who has gone before us. Nevertheless, Christ's ordinary plan for advancing in the kingdom in this world is to do so through anonymous, quiet saints who simply live faithfully, him, faithfully for him in their day-to-day jobs. Right? That, that's really it. Let me say that again because that's so important. Christ's ordinary plan for advancing his kingdom in this world is through the quiet and faithful lives of millions of ordinary believers who never gain any fame in this world at all. Now, let me give you a a, a passage that kind of comes alongside this point. It's from the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Paul writes... Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to make it your ambition to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, if some of you are thinking about starting a career as motivational speakers, and you pick as your main theme you're going to teach, be ambitious to lead a quiet life, I want to suggest you're not going to get a lot of sales. That is not things your fellow Americans are going to sign up for. That's precisely what the Apostle Paul tells the church in Thessalonica. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The truth is simply this. If we trust Jesus, love one another, give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, and treat unbelievers well, then Jesus will use us to change the world. That's the main storyline of the Bible as it reflects on discipleship. Of course, the main storyline is Jesus himself is our king who comes to redeem us. But in terms of our response, this is the truth. If we trust Jesus, love one another, give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, and treat unbelievers well, then Jesus Christ will use us together to change the world. Now, some of you may go on to live sort of heroic lives, and in this congregation, there are some really talented people. It will not surprise me if you go out and have a wide sphere of influence, and that's fantastic. I'm not discouraging you from that. That's fantastic. But that's the exception. 
The ordinary way that God builds his kingdom is through simple faithfulness. Indeed, in the kingdom of God, faithfulness is success. Now, we would naturally think, simply because it's the way the world works, that when Christ returns, the famous preachers throughout church history, you know, Martin Luther, St. John Chrysostom, Spurgeon, uh, the great heroes of the Old Testament, like Elijah of the New Testament, like the Apostle Paul, they're going to get all of the Lord's time and attention. You know, it's going to be these circles around the throne. They're going to be up toward the front, and all the quiet people are going to be far removed from it. You know, we got in. We're not getting a lot in terms of rewards. But what Jesus says is this. Yes, I will graciously lavish rewards upon those who are my faithful prophets and apostles. But do you know who else I'm going to lavish rewards on? The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus is not saying anyone who just happens to do a nice thing to a prophet, right? That's not the point. He is saying that the person who receives a true prophet because he speaks on my behalf, that individual will receive the fullness of my blessings. Now, next Sunday evening, Lord willing, we're going to look at 1 Kings 17 and see Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. But many of you already know that story quite well. In fact, it's been our worship guide for a couple weeks because we've gotten bumped out, right? And, and if you think about that story, here's what happens. There's this Gentile woman, the widow in Zarephath, and Elijah goes there after he prays for the rain to stop, and God is in some way worked in her life to make clear that she should welcome this prophet. And Elijah shows up and she receives him. She believes his words, and we know that because he, she puts his words into practice. Now, if you recall, God had promised to provide for Elijah. Right? There's going to be a famine in the land, but God's going to provide food and water for Elijah. You know what he does, though, when this widow from Zarephath receives Elijah into her home? He causes her jar of flour and her flask of oil to never run out for three years. And when her son grows sick and suddenly dies, the Lord uses his prophet Elijah to raise him back from the dead. And not only that, the Lord has given his word to Elijah, but through Elijah he's given his word to this woman. When we get to the end of the story, it concludes with her saying this, Now I know that you are a man of God, And the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You know what that means? God had caused her to be born again. God had given her material blessings. He had raised her son from the dead. And he had given her the crown of life as she received the prophet into her home. In this life, this widow shared in the prophet's reward And the age to come, she receives the crown of life. And we don't even know her name. See, you don't have to be famous in order to be important and blessed in God's kingdom. And I would say more than that, we do not know her name. As we don't know the names of hardly anybody throughout church history. But Jesus knew her name. He, as it were, had her name engraved on the palms of his hands as he went to the cross to die for her sins. This widow was utterly unknown in Israel 
Yet by faith she received a prophet's reward. Then Jesus continues, And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Uh, The expression righteous person is more general than a prophet. A prophet here means someone who is directly giving God's word to his people. God speaks to and through the prophet directly. Uh, A righteous person is a much more broad category in the Bible. Uh, What it means, though, is not simply someone who's been justified by faith. That is, in fact, how we are receive the righteousness we need to stand before God. But the term is usually used for someone who is conspicuous in trying to follow the Lord in their life. Uh, There are men and women of God. That's the term we would use. And we just heard that Elijah was called the man of God. But we see this actually throughout the Bible with really prominent and sometimes very quiet people. They wouldn't have been prominent in their own age. Um, living for the, for the Lord and walking in his ways. We just finished going through Ruth a few weeks ago. And an obvious person you would think of is Boaz. Boaz was a radical exception to his generation. He's living at a time when people are lawless. Boaz shows up at his field And he says, the Lord be with you. And his workers respond, and the Lord bless you too. Right? He was a righteous man. Or think of um, Zechariah and Elizabeth when uh, we're told in Luke of the birth of John the Baptist. I think that's actually just a a beautiful part of the story. Um, Luke introduces the story of John the Baptist like this. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Now here's the thing you've got to get. When you think about Zechariah and Elizabeth, even though you know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, don't you think it's just natural that the Lord's going to lavish blessings on them in the age to come? This righteous man and this righteous woman who sought to walk in his ways, of course you do. Jesus wants you to know, yes, but it's not just them. See, in this world, if your employer has a bonus pool, and they take a big chunk of that bonus pool and they give it to one of the employees to reward them, that means there's less for everyone else. But God's grace doesn't work like that. The fact that Jesus is going to lavish blessings upon prophets and conspicuously righteous people does not mean that he lacks blessings for you. In fact, what Jesus says is that if you simply receive a righteous person like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you welcome them, you embrace them because they are devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, then you too will receive a righteous person's reward. Because the church is the body of Christ, you do not need to be a hero in order to be the object of Christ's lavish grace and eternal blessings. Um, This brings us to what might be a surprising connection between our old and new covenant readings for this evening. I've entitled this section, Father Abraham Has Many Sons. It's a short section, uh, but don't give it short shrift in your own thinking. Father Abraham has many sons. Verse 42. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Once again, it's important to grasp that Jesus is not simply here talking about charity, that, that you go out and help people in need, although that's a good thing to do. He's explicitly talking about doing something for someone because he is one of my disciples, this little one. Well, the question is, is who are these little ones? And you will not be surprised to discover there's a bit of scholarly debate about this uh, in trying to identify who these little ones actually are. In the Gospel according to Mark, there's actually a very similar saying of Jesus, but I think it's important to realize it comes to us in a different context. This is from Mark chapter 9, verse 41. There, Jesus gives almost the identical saying, but as I say, importantly, he does so within a different context. In Mark's account of the gospel, our Lord says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose your reward. And he's speaking there to his disciples. And so in one sense, This does apply to the apostles and the disciples, and I think we can say it applies to all Christians throughout history. Every single Christian is, in one sense, one of Christ's little ones. That is why the great um, men and women of faith throughout church history have actually been people of deep humility. Whether it's Moses or it's the apostle Paul, they never stopped being amazed at the grace of God that God would save sinners like them. They never stopped being amazed at the grace of God, that God would do such extraordinary things, knowing that they're just clay pots, right? So they too were little ones. But in Matthew, when Jesus says little ones, I think the context leads us to believe that he's not talking to the initial disciples. What he's talking about is those Christians who are going to seem very, very unimportant in the world, right? People that are, no one pays attention to in the world. That, that's who he's talking about. And he's saying, even when you do something is apparently insignificant, is giving a cup of cold water to this unknown person that no one's going to pay any attention to, never going to make it on camera, right? Even if you do that, you will by no means lose your reward. In our old covenant reading this evening, we heard the foundational promise that the Lord made to and through Abraham. The Lord says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now while you and I will never replace Abraham in the history of redemption, there's a distinct promise being made to Abraham. What I want you to see is that To a large degree, Jesus Christ is repeating this promise, not the totality of the promise to Abraham. He's repeating this promise, and he is applying it to every single Christian, even the most significant Christians, insignificant Christians, in the life of the world. Jesus is saying, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse That is how closely the Lord identifies with his people, even with you. As our Lord prepares his inner circle for their very first missionary journey, 
He is also preparing the entire church for the Great Commission, which is where Matthew's entire account of the gospel is headed. There, Jesus will commission us for the greatest task in all of history. Jesus sends us out to make disciples of every single people group, to disciple the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, by teaching them to obey everything that he has taught us. As we engage in this great work, we are going to face opposition, even persecution. Yet Jesus doesn't encourage us by watering down the message, saying, don't make it so comprehensive. Only go to those people who want to hear you. He doesn't cut down the scope were to disciple all the nations, without exception. And Jesus does not try to encourage us by promising us that we will have smooth sailing along the way. Rather, Jesus encourages us by declaring that he is for us, that he has so identified with his people that the church has become his body. Jesus encourages us by making clear that we do not need to be famous or do anything dramatic in order to be vital members of his church, in order to be important members in this mission, in order to be deeply blessed by him. All we need to do is to be faithful. Indeed, as I have said, in the kingdom of God, faithfulness is success. And Jesus encourages us by making clear that one of the extraordinary promises that he made to Abraham applies to all of Abraham's daughters and sons. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Beloved, that is how closely the Lord identifies with his people, even with you. Indeed, Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has promised to be with us every step of the way, even to the end of the age. And he promises to all who trust in him, to all of you who trust in him, that he will bring you all the way home and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.